Mark chapter 5 is where we'll be. We'll look at verses 1 through 20 this morning. Thinking about your life, what is the scariest thing that you've ever seen or experienced? What's the scariest thing that you've ever seen or experienced? For me, uh, I was a freshman in college. I did, I went to a Bible institute in upstate New York for about a year, and it was in the Adirondack Mountains. The Adirondack Mountains are, are a beautiful place, and so we're out in the middle of nowhere. Our, our school was located out in, in the, in the mountains in the middle of nowhere. And I remember um, there was this place called Scroon Manor up near Scroon Lake, New York. And Scroon Manor used to be a, a, a place where famous wealthy people would go uh, that lived in New York City, and they would go upstate New York to, to vacation. And so it was kind of an old resort that people would go to. Now, it had been condemned for, for years, and no one would visit there anymore. It was uh, about a mile off the, the main road into the woods. And so, of course, you know, your college student, you're bored. One of the things we loved to do was just go there and check it out because it was this eerie scene. You're in the middle of nowhere. There's no lights or anything like that. You're walking through the woods for a mile. Then you come across this old, like, amphitheater that was there. It was old like, stone uh, amphitheater there that was a place where they had all the their golf courses, so it was these wide open fields out in the middle of nowhere, beautiful little beachy area too with rocks, and so we would always go and, you know, um, uh, make s'mores and play guitar and all that kind of stuff that we would go and do. And so I remember, of course, you know, just like any rural town, there's always like a ghost story that people would tell, and so people would always say, well, man, Scroon Manor, I mean, that's the place where they had that human sacrifice that time, and they're like, oh my goodness, okay. And so we would go through and we would hear all these stories about, you know, cult practices that would happen at Scroon Manor. And they said, by the old amphitheater, you walk out there and you, and you could see it's this gothic looking theater. That's where they had the human sacrifice on Halloween night. And so, of course, we're, we're kind of scared the first time we go. And then we realized it was just probably just, just a story that people told to scare people. So, of course, me and my roommate, we got a whole bunch of people and we said, we're going to take them for the first time. We'd already been and we're telling them all the ghost stories. Man, this is, this is where, you know, right around the corner is where we're going to walk up and we're going to find the, where the human sacrifice took place. And we're kind of scaring them and, and they're all freaking out. We're all walking through the woods in the, in the dark, in the pitch black. And so as we're walking up, we notice most of the time we would go, we would also see classmates there. But this time, of course, we're the only group there. No cars were by the road where the path was. And we walk up and we see a fire, a campfire that's taking place. And we said, okay, this must be some of our classmates. And so we, we walk up kind of confidently. But as we walk up, and I am not making this up. This is not a dream I had. I've actually talked to other students that have confirmed this. This is the weirdest thing. There's a campfire going, and there's a man standing by the campfire holding like an old scroll. And he has a black cloak on with a medallion necklace, and then there's people surrounding him in a circle, chanting different words that he's chanting. The weirdest thing I've ever seen. And we walk up, we're, up, um, again, a mile into the woods, nothing around us. We walk up, he's chanting things, they're chanting back, they're all in black cloaks in the middle of the mountains. And we look up, and all we see is this guy look up at us and see us through the flames. <laughs> now, I had a group of people with me, and I will not tell you what the girl said that was with me, but she was like speaking in tongues, the languages that she was using when she was with us. And I looked up, and the, the group 
around him, they started to turn like this at us. And I did not wait to see what was happen, what would happen next, but I'm going to tell you right now, I ran fast enough to win the 200-yard dash in the Olympic. I ran so fast, and I will never forget that scene. And as, as long as I can remember that scene, I still get chills thinking about what would have happened if we'd have waited a second longer. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a situation like that, where something was just eerie or scary, somewhat paranormal or maybe like satanic ritual that you've walked upon or maybe you've seen, maybe even even a movie that you've seen, and it gives you chills and it forces you to ask the question, what are evil spirits and what are their role in the world? What, What can Satan do? What can demons do? And scripture actually tells us that there is a spiritual warfare that happens all around us. And so you wonder, what is that spiritual warfare? What does the spiritual warfare mean? And then more importantly, what is God's role in the midst of the spiritual warfare that surrounds us? That's the question that I want us to ask today. And that's the question that we're going to see answered in this text this morning. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus has shown is beginning to show his power to his disciples. The end of chapter 4, he's teaching his disciples the, the parables, of, uh, 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 parables and stories to tell them what the kingdom of God is like. And then he actually stops teaching them and he begins to show them. Uh, his disciples are on a boat with Jesus and there's a storm that happens and Jesus calms the storm, showing that he's sovereign over nature. And then the story moves from this scene to the next scene in Mark chapter 5 where Jesus is actually going to show his authority and his power even in the midst of spiritual war. And that's what we're going to see in the text in Mark chapter 5. We'll start in verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. This is Jesus with his disciples. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with a, what, unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one can bind him anymore, not even with the chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, what happened? He ran up and he fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion for we are many. Now, you have this scene where Jesus encounters a demon-possessed man. And he says that he's possessed by legion. And the, the demon is speaking through the man. The man's not speaking his own words. The, the word, when the man speaks, it's 
it's the demon speaking through him. And he said that we are legion. Uh, we don't know exactly how many that is. We know that the Roman army was called a legion or a sect of the Roman army was called a legion. And at full force, it was about 6,000 soldiers. This doesn't mean there's 6,000 demons that have possessed this man, but we can assume that it just means a lot of demons. He doesn't have one demon that has possessed him. He has many demons that have possessed him. This is so such an impactful story that two other gospel writers, both Matthew and, uh, and Luke, describe this story. And Matthew actually says there's two men who are possessed by, by demons, and they are both communicating with Jesus. However, Mark emphasizes one because that was likely the one that spoke to Jesus the most. But notice, first of all, this man. The, the demons seemingly have complete and utter control over this man. In verse 5, you see the desperation of this man. Where is he found? He's found night and he's found day, living in the graveyard. He lives among the tombs. He's desperate. He's cutting himself and he's, he's crying out. He's in this hopeless state and these demons are literally mutilating him. And this is what Jesus, this is what Satan rather seeks to do. Satan wants to, as John 10 says that he is a thief who comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan wants to destroy something that's precious to God, his creation, us. I want you to also notice that there's no human cure for this man. Verse 3 says no one can bind him anymore, not even with a chain. And verse 4 goes as far as to say he'd often been bound with shackles and the demon's strength inside of this man tore these shackles apart. No one can help him. No one can restrain him. The only thing that is left for this man is to live as an outcast in a graveyard among the dead. And we don't know what got him here. Could have been his own sin that made him susceptible to demons. It could have been trauma that he had faced that made him susceptible to demonic forces but no one can help him. Here's why. Because a man doesn't just have a physical issue or a mental issue or psychological issue. This man has a spiritual issue. Society cannot save him. And this is such is the society's way. For instance, we have more research in the areas of therapy and mental health in our culture than we've ever had before Psychology is consistently a top 10 among professions chosen by, chosen by rising students. However, mental health is consistently rising in our country. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in our country. And it's the second leading cause of death from pe- people in ages of 10 to 34 years old of age. Thankfully, There are wonderful treatments out there, and there are many who have put together advanced research to help people who have faced intense trauma. However, society cannot be the cure. Spiritual issues must be cured by a compassionate and loving God. And what this text shows us, there's nothing beyond, there's nothing that is beyond a cure. That Jesus can handle 
anything that we've faced or any sin that we've encountered. There's no physical issue or emotional pain or spiritual torment that is too much for Jesus. That's why I meet so many of you who are in the, the field of psychology and you, you try to help people and you're striving your best and you meet with people that have faced tremendous trauma or tremendous addiction and you can help them, but you can only go this far because your, your workplace won't allow you to share your faith and say, so you're, you're struggling because you're like, I can take them this far, but I can't give them what they really need, which is Jesus. And the text shows us that Jesus can handle anything, that Jesus can handle any level of pain and any level of evil. Look again at verse 6. It says, when he, the, the demon, saw Jesus from afar, what did he do? He ran and he fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, the son of the most high? Do you see the demon's rightful place? He knows that even in the presence of God, I'm nothing. He's bowing down and he's saying, what are you going to do with me? What, what, what are you going to do with me? Matthew's gospel, when, it, when the story is shared in Matthew, in verse 28, Matthew 8, verse 28, he says, when the demon saw him, it says, Behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, the Son of God? Have you come to torment us. And then he says something interesting. Before the time. What does that mean? Before the time. Well, there's two words in the Greek New Testament that describe time. Uh, one is a word, uh, chronos, which means it's normal time, like the, the time on your watch. Another one is uh, kiros, which is a specific instant where God comes into time and he disrupts things. He changes things forever. And so they're asking, is this, they, they, they use the word kiros here, meaning, is this the time that you're going to come in and change things? Uh, John the baptizer in Mark chapter 1, when he talks about Jesus coming into the world, he uses Mark chapter 1 verse 15. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe in the gospel. What is he saying? Jesus has come. Now it's the time for everyone to repent and to surrender their life to Christ. So he's saying this is the kiros. This is the time that God has come to intersect human, human history and change everything. You even remember with Mark 3, Jesus says, I'm going to bind Satan. I'm going to walk in to his house, and I'm going to bind him, and I'm the stronger man. He's saying, this is the time that I'm going to do that. So here's what I'm trying to say. Satan knows there is an end to all of his deception. He knows there's an end to all of his evil. They know there's an end to all of his lives, his lies. And so the, the, the text shows us the demons are panicking. They're saying, is this the time now that you're going to eliminate us? They knew Jesus is going to come and redeem his people. And part of that, he would also get rid of his enemies. They're saying, is this time now? In other words, listen, Satan and demons can only live within the borrowed time that God accredits 
them. Satan and demons can only live within the borrowed time that God accredits them, meaning they aren't roaming the earth thinking that they're somehow going to win it all. Sadly, demons believe the outcome that Jesus is going to conquer his enemies more than we do most days. They're certain this is going to end, and it's not going to end well for us. Notice what they call him in verse 7. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? They didn't say Satan's our most high God. They said Jesus is the most high God. It reminds me of James chapter 2, verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that God is one. And they what? They shudder. They shudder. They're fearful. They know that they're living on borrowed time. They know there's an expiration date. They don't know when that is, but they know that God will eventually win. And I said this in one of the first weeks of this series. We often have an unhealthy view of the relationship between God and Satan. We often think it's like the ultimate rivalry. Like, who's going to win it? This is East Coast and, and West Coast. This is Red Team and Blue Team. This is Carolina and this is Duke. You know, this is Michigan and this is Ohio State. Like, who's going? Red Sox, Yankees, Apollo Creed, Rocky Balboa. Like, who's going to win it all, right? Who's going to win it all? We don't know. It's not that at all in, in the Bible. Satan knows there's an expiration date. He knows the end of the story. He's watched all the Rocky movies. He knows how it's going to show up, right? He knows the song is going to play, and he's done. He's it. I remember a few years ago watching the New York Giants play the Miami Dolphins, and Miami was handling their business, and the Giant, the, the, uh, I said the New York Giants, I meant the New York Jets. The Jets knew they were not going to win the game, and finally, I think the, the team had thrown, uh, the, the Jets had thrown an interception to one of the Dolphin players, and the Dolphin player was running down for a touchdown. It was in the th- third quarter, and he was running on the sidelines. The game was over. There was no chance they were going to come back, especially after that. And one of the coaches for the Jets walks over to the sidelines as the guy's running down the field, he puts out his foot and he trips him. That's crazy, right? I mean, certainly he faced suspension for the rest of the season. He was, he was kicked off the team, couldn't, couldn't coach. Why did he do that? Well, he knew that it was over. He was just trying to distract the game. He was frustrated. He was angry. That's how Satan operates. He cannot change the outcome of the game. All he can do is come in and try to distract it. I want you to see this text again. Look at how many times the demons have a begging disposition before the Lord Jesus. And again, these are, this is legions. These are thousands of demons. What do they do? Verse 6, they fall down before him. Verse 7, they say, do not torment me. Verse 10, they begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Let me show you where this leads. Pick up in verse 11. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Weird text. Let us enter them. 
So he gave them what? Permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000. They rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now, there's a couple things I want to point out here. First of all, this is a strange story, is it not? I mean, the disciples, they had a pretty intense week with Jesus. They were just on a boat. Jesus has calmed the storm. Now they go on a boat, and now they see a demon-possessed man, and Jesus sends out all the demons into pigs. The pigs go crazy. They jump off of a cliff, and they drown. This is what happens when disciples get on boats. They're like, no more beach trips with Jesus. We're good, right? We've got it all. But notice the, the posture. I mean, this is very strange. How often would it happen? How often would you see something like this happen? If you're an Israelite, you, you would have known a story similar to this where Moses is running away from Pharaoh and his chariots, and what happens? He walks up to the Red Sea. He commands the sea to split, and then when they walk through, Pharaoh's chariots come through, and then he commands the, the Red Sea to close. That was the old Exodus, and then now we live in the new Exodus. In the old Exodus, you see the enemies of God were other nations. The en- enemies of God's people were other nations. But now we live in the new Exodus, where Jesus is doing something very similar, but our enemies are not all of their nations. Clearly, we're a nation of many nations. We're believers that are spread out in the world. So who are our enemies? Satan and demons. Here's the difference, though. We see a sovereign God, and we also know the end. We also know in the end, Jesus is going to win. And we also know that God is even sovereign over their wickedness, which brings me to the second thing I want you to see. Notice that the demons, they have to ask for permission from Jesus. And what's the compromise? They say, don't destroy us now. Would you downgrade us just a little bit to possess pigs? And you can tell that these demons are not from Eastern North Carolina because they waste all those pigs. They drown them all, right? No, they're useful. But why would we pick? We would never pick a pig. Like, say, okay, if you are going to live your life to be one animal for a day. What would you do? If you were to pick one animal for a day, you would not say, pig, I want to wallow in mud and stink really bad and eat garbage. That's what I want to be for a day. No, of course not. But this is the compromise. They say, hey, put us, let us possess the pigs. And what happens? They lose their mind and they jump off a cliff and drown. I have no idea why and what the significance is. Let's keep going, okay? The point I want to see is that they had to ask Jesus for permission. Think about the story of Job. When Satan wants to tempt Job, what does he have to do? He has to ask God for permission. In other words, Satan does not run free. He can tempt, he can oppress, he can possess non-believers. He cannot possess believers, however. We see it in 1 John 4, 4. He says, little children, you are from God and had overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In other words, Satan is bound in terms of what he can do to God's beloved. 
to God's people, to God's church. In the New Testament, we see Satan possess people, and that can certainly happen today, but not with believers in Christ. Believers in Christ, we have confidence because we have someone greater who dwells within us. We will overcome Satan. We will overcome his schemes. Satan will not destroy God's people. Satan will not destroy God's church. This is why, this is why Jesus says in Matthew's gospel that the gates of hell will not prevail. If you're thinking about an army, do you win wars with gates? Do you go out and fight with gates? No, gates are for what? For offense or for defense? Gates are for defense. Please, don't hurt us. Don't harm us. This is the power of God over all wickedness. The gates of hell, and it says they will not prevail. It will not stand. And so the question that we're forced with when we think about the power of God is this. Why doesn't God just crush Satan now? Isn't he supposed to throw him in the lake of fire? Don't we see the promises of God? Isn't, his, isn't, isn't this his final place of where he would be ended forever? I mean, doesn't David say to Jesus, to the Lord, doesn't he say, lead us not into temptation? I mean, wouldn't the, the cure for that to be just get rid of the tempter? Wouldn't it be easier to walk this earth without Satan? Wouldn't it be easier? Okay, good. I was wondering. I was worried. I was like, okay, we've got a long sermon here ahead of us if we can't agree here. So if it's easier, why wouldn't he just crush him? Why does he let him roam around like a roaring lion seeking to whomever he will devour? Why does God allow him to do that if he's all-powerful? And we can see in the text clearly that when the demons saw him, they're, they're begging him. They're asking permission. They're, they're saying, you're the God of the Most High. Don't, don't end us now, so why doesn't he end them now? So I want to confess, if you're waiting for a clear Bible verse that explains that answer away, there's not a clear verse. However, what I see that happens in the text next gives us a small idea of why I believe that God allows Satan to roam this earth. Pick up, if you will, in verse 14. This is what happens next. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people, what happened? People came to see what had just happened. And when they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, he's clothed and in his right mind, it says they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Now, what's the power in this story? The power in this story is the testimony. It was people hearing what happened, that Jesus had overcome wickedness and evil and demons, and that is what people marveled at. 
everyone saw this man as a new man. He was a different man. He's, he's sitting. He's cl- fully clothed. He's in his right mind. And people were so freaked out. They said, this is too much. This is too much for us to see. That the townspeople began to share what had happened. The testimony became so powerful that it drew people in. And then in verse 18, the story ends beautifully. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that they might be with him. And he did not prevent him, uh, permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and let them and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And I love this. Verse 20. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone, what does the text say? Everyone marveled. So if you want to know why is it that Jesus allows Satan to roam this earth, here's why. Because God's glory shines more brightly when the power of the gospel is seen to overcome Satan and his schemes. Remember the beginning of the passage when Jesus and his disciples saw this man who was possessed by the legion, it never says that Jesus and his disciples were afraid. In fact, fear or the word afraid is not even used in the text until later. Afraid was actually used to describe the people when they saw the transformation of this man after his encounter with Jesus. This freaked everyone out. I can't believe that Jesus has this sort of power to overcome Satan and demons. You see, it's more glorious when others see the power of Jesus over darkness that is before us. When believers, like you and I, believers in Jesus Christ, when we can fight temptation, knowing that there's a tempter who lurks in the darkness, who seeks to destroy us and deceive us. But there's a powerful story of redemption that people will look at and they'll marvel at. Knowing that believers in Christ, as John says in 1 John, will overcome the world. Paul says it this way in Colossians 2 verse 15. I love this verse. He says, he, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What's he saying? Hey, I'm going to let, I'm going to let demons run this earth or roam this earth rather. And I'm going to put them to open shame by triumphing over them. I want y'all to see my power and my work. I want to see it even in your own life when you're saying, how can I fight sin? It just feels like temptation is so powerful and and so strong. And I keep running back to the same sin in my life. How will I ever overcome? How will I ever get through? And and Jesus is saying, it's there. It's in the cross. It's in the gospel. And not only am I going to see your triumph, but I'm also going to embarrass. I'm going to embarrass the rulers and authorities that tempt you. That's what he's saying he's going to do. 
Let me give you another more appropriate example. It's even happening this week. On Good Friday, we're going to come together in this room, and we're going to worship Christ, and we're going to celebrate what Christ has done on the cross. We're going to reflect on it. But to make this story possible, what had to happen? Well, God chose to send his son, his one and only son, right in the middle of satanic warfare. In the midst of Jesus' very own disciples, you have a man named Judas. And Judas is said to have betrayed Jesus for how much? 30 pieces of silver? By the way, both Jeremiah 11 and Zechariah, or Jeremiah 19 and Zechariah 11 said that Jesus would be betrayed for that exact amount. And that God planned out this narrative where Jesus would be betrayed and killed. But the Gospels tell us that Satan put it in the heart of Judas to betray Jesus Christ. So what is Satan doing? He's roaming the earth, he's lying, he's murdering. But what happens? God is sovereign over the story. Satan is the one who's lying and tempting. But God gets the glory in the midst of it all. They're one of the most redeeming stories that we could ever see Jesus' death on the cross. Satan is used as the, as the liar and deceiver, and he's used a, as a pawn in God's redemptive story. So that when people see Christ, we see the beauty of the gospel. And I think what happens on Good Friday when we see and we reflect on Christ and we see the betrayal, we see the lies, we see the deceit that led Jesus Christ to the cross, what it does when Easter comes around and we see the risen Christ, it makes the resurrection of Jesus Christ so much sweeter and so much more glorious and victorious. Because this is what Christ can do in the face of evil. And what this means for us this morning means the resurrection proves that Satan cannot and will not defeat the Lord Jesus. It means that sin will not prevail it means that death no longer has its sting. And so, believer, this morning, we no longer stand. Because Jesus Christ is victorious, we no longer stand as men and women who live among the graves as the man did in this passage. No, we've been set free from the bondage of Satan's sin and death. And so what's you and I's response to that truth? What's you and I's response to that truth? Look at verse 20. Let us rest in verse 20. Let this be our response. 
When the man is set free, he wanted to be with Jesus, and Jesus said, no, I want you to go tell everyone about this. He says he went away to proclaim, and then he says how much Jesus had done for him, and then what happened? Everyone marveled. So you want to know, okay, what do I do with this truth? How do I, how do I live this out that Jesus Christ has overcome wickedness, that overcome the grave, that he, he's going to crush Satan? How do I live out this truth? He says, go and proclaim it to the world and let everyone marvel. So what does this mean? It means that we don't live in defeat, believer. It means that sin will not take you and defeat you, believer. It means that this world, John says, you will overcome it, believer. And when people see your willpower to fight sin, not of your own, but through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, because your life has been transformed by the gospel, the world will see that fight in you through the work of the Holy Spirit. And the text says, many will marvel. And they'll not marvel by your work. They'll they'll marvel at the work of Christ in you. That's our hope this morning, Integrity Church. Would that be us? Would we leave here and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ with our lives? And would people see it and would they marvel? To God be the glory. Let's pray. Jesus, we are thankful that you